So if you would take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 16. We've been examining Jesus' focused teaching on the Holy Spirit, dealing particularly with John 14, 15, and 16. There are about five pertinent passages that he wants us to understand that he's communicating to the disciples. And it's important anytime that you're studying Scripture to ask yourself the question, where are you in history when you're getting into the text? Jesus is giving a farewell address to his disciples. He is getting ready to be betrayed. He is getting ready to be crucified. And I think we have to remember why this is important. We don't get any inkling that they suspected that Judas was the one who would betray him. Any of you ever watch those shows and they really build it up to a big reveal or a big twist at the end? And your response is always, no way! Right? Nuh-uh! Or, what? And then you got a handprint on your forehead from that kind of thing. Well, in the same way, some of you have been watching The Masked Singer, haven't you? No? Okay, good. The what? Good, good, good. But, but any time that there's a big twist or there's a reveal, into the sixth sense, anybody see that? Is that it? Is that the one where Bruce Willis realizes that he's dead at the end? Yeah. And everybody's like, oh, oh, stop playing with my emotions, right? It really messes you up. What's that? It's true. That's true. I'll go ahead and tell you too. I'll go ahead and ruin it for you. Snape is the one who kills Dumbledore, so I'm going to go ahead and let you know. I'll just ruin all the ends for you. I'm just going to go ahead and tell you. Darth Vader is Luke's father, okay? That's what's going on. What else can I ruin for everybody? We know. Anyway, but seriously, you have to imagine that when they were gathered around at the end of this teaching, and all of a sudden in the distance they see Judas coming, but he's got a mob with him. We're talking burning torches and pitchforks and who knows what else is coming to arrest Jesus. And Judas just walks on up and gives him a kiss in order to signify this is the one you're looking for. All of them had to have been completely jarred at that moment, rattled, broken down. I can't believe this. I, I knew he was kind of weird. But this, because that's what we do. Don't lie like you don't do that. You know the weird people. Don't act like you don't. But this, really? And can you imagine their thoughts? But, 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 and that's all they can get out. And they all scatter, don't they? Peter has a failed attempt at trying to defend. Jesus rebukes him for it. And they leave. What you find out later is that Peter denies him. John follows from a distance. And the other nine cannot be found at all. Now with that end in mind of where this is going, Jesus' words here make a lot more sense. Because he's saying things like, when the Spirit of truth comes, when the Helper comes, the Advocate, the Counselor, the one who is going to come alongside you and be a forever friend to you. When he comes, 
going to take care of you and he's going to reveal to you everything I said to you. You may not understand it now. In fact, we read that a lot, don't we? We read that Jesus does something and then we see the disciples and they did not understand what was going on. You're sitting on this side of the page going, I don't understand what's going on, right? But later on, the Spirit reveals it to them and he teaches them in all truth and he leads them in all truth. And something I want to bring our attention to was what we left off with last time. So if you're looking in John, I want you to look up at 15 at the end of chapter 15 before we jump into 16.1. And remember, just real quick, to put, to put your mind where he's at, in the series of what he's talking about here, the flow of thought, in chapter 5, verse 18, he started talking about certain persecution would come because of people standing for his name. Okay, so, so this is the idea. Persecution is the overlying mindset that's going on. It's the context. And here's what he says in 26. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of, what is He? Important for you to know that. Who proceeds from the Father, who comes out from within the Father to us, is the idea there with proceeds. He will testify about who? Me. The Holy Spirit is always going to point the way to Jesus. Always, every time. And then notice the counterpart that comes to that in seven in 27. And you will testify also because you have been with me from the beginning. So the Holy Spirit is going to testify. And the disciples are going to testify. Now, we talked about this last week. The Holy Spirit's not going to be saying one thing here and the disciples saying one thing here. No, they're going to be fused together and they're going to be one and the same. Which means, and this is an important point to get for what we're going to look at today, when the Holy Spirit testifies, how does He testify, church? Through who? Us. The Holy Spirit doesn't need to leave home to evangelize. Because we take him wherever he tells us to go. See, this is why missions is so paramount. How do you think somebody that gets called to missions does that? I mean, they just sitting one day in here. They were listening to Pastor Steve preach 10 years ago, and they said, I got to go to Zimbabwe. Is that how that happens? Is it just like they sit on a cockerel and woo, got to go? What happens? What happens? You know what happens. The Spirit stirs them. It is the hearing and the intaking of God's Word. No book like it. And when you take this and you put it in the hands of the author of the book who resides inside of you, he begins taking this raw material and he puts it through a refining fire and he starts bringing on the fan, right? Getting it going. Next thing you know, you're almost like Jeremiah. If I would have held on to your word, my bones would have wasted away. I had to tell somebody. I had to let it go. That's how mission starts. The Holy Spirit does not witness in some strange way where we're all in the lotus pose with no socks on and kind of doing like this and 
breathing a whole lot of oxygen. It doesn't happen like that. Instead, it's God's people hearing God's Word. And then because of this amazing explosion that happens, we can't help but to be broken and motivated to start doing God's work. Because of God's, don't forget, Holy Spirit's God. God's prompting. So with that in mind, and the fact that a testimony is going to take place, and remember what he's talking about. You will testify. What's the context? What's the context? Per, se, cue, shut. Anybody here today? Come on, guys. Come on. Since there's less of you, there's more interaction to be had. Persecution. Which means that even when times are hard, even when you're being ridiculed, torn down, made fun of, fearful, and self-conscious about what you might say, guess what? The Holy Spirit says say it. Trust Him. Because to not do so is unbelief. It's the exact same type of unbelief we've seen all throughout the Bible. The greatest sin in the Bible is unbelief. Period. So when we are not sensitive to and obeying the promptings of the Spirit within us to testify, we are not believing what Scripture has plainly told us. And God has gone to great pains to make sure that we are to be successful in everything that He has called us to do. How do we know that? Because we see the shift from the Holy Spirit being with the disciples to the Holy Spirit being in every disciple. That's the difference. So now, 16.1. Notice that he gives you the reason as to why he is saying this. These things I've spoken to you. Here's the reason. So that you may be kept from stumbling. Are they getting ready to stumble? Yes. In fact, this word here means no scandal is what it means. So that you will not be scandalized when all of this happens. Do you think that God's word that he would do you think that Jesus's word that he was telling them right here at this moment was enough to sustain them from abandoning him when this persecution came? Do you think it was? It is. Isn't it Jesus who quotes Deuteronomy who says we don't live by bread alone? Let me phrase that for today. We don't live by carbs alone. We don't live by buffet alone. We don't live by Cracker Barrel alone. I ate there last night. I know. Revival. But out of every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the living God, His word is better sustenance than food. It provides better stability than eating. Do we really believe that? Because notice, Jesus is making a pretty big statement here. I'm telling you all these things because it will keep you grounded and away from scandal, from stumbling blocks, from anything that gets in your way. Hold fast to it. Don't lose sight of it. Look what he says here, verse 2. They will make you outcasts from the synagogue. Now to us, that might not be a big deal. But can you imagine coming to church and being like, "Mm, you're not welcome here. Leave. Get off the property. We're going to call the cops. Can you imagine? That's what it's talking about. We are going to make sure that you're not just 
thrown out. And here's the thing. The synagogue wasn't just about religious observances at that time. It was also about social status. So we're going to hurt you religiously and socially because of your faith in Jesus Christ. One of the greatest ways that people have gotten the upper hand in this day and age is by ruining reputations. Because reputations are hard to salvage, even if somebody makes a false accusation against you. And it's proven to be false. A lot of times you never get that clout back simply by mistaken association. Well, notice this. They are going to ruin your reputations in the culture that you live in. They're going to tear it down and leave it for dead. Notice what he says after this. But an hour is coming. Notice this, future. For everyone who kills you to think that he is offering service to God. Do we see this today? Do we see people being put to death and they're saying it's all because of God that we're doing this? Yeah, they usually cry out, Allah Akbar is what they do, right? Jesus wasn't telling us a lie, was he? And notice, he's going to give you the reason why that happens. Hold on, Colin. He's going to give you the reason why this happens. Look what he says. They think they're offering service to God. Verse 3. These things they will do because they have not known the Father or me. Why do they do that? Here's the reason why, guys. is because Allah is not God. And Allah is not Jesus Christ. And in Islam, they call him Esau. And they do not believe that he saved anyone. Do not believe that he died for sins. I don't believe he's coming back, definitely. They think it's blasphemy for you to say that there is a trinity. So whatever it is that they are promoting that we see can totally harmonize with this now is completely against everything that God's Word has ever promoted about who Jesus is, who God is, what's going to happen. Throw it all out the window. But what is the problem? Ignorance. They don't know the one true God. They don't know His Son, Jesus Christ. And so they are acting and responding to the truth as any unsaved person would because their sin is exposed and they understand, I am going to have to give an account before an almighty God. So my gut reaction and the surrounding deception that Satan has created for me to exist in provokes me to pick up a knife and cut off somebody's head. Does that sound rational or reasonable to you? Not at all. But yet, that's where we are in the world. Moving on here, verse 4. But these things I have spoken to you, notice, here's the reason, so that when the hour comes, you may remember that I told you of them. These things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. So in other words, the whole reason why he is bringing this up is because when this happens, God knows. Jesus knows. He knew it was going to happen. He told us it was going to happen. And in the midst of when somebody is getting ready to give their life for the sake of Christ, and they're told very simply, just recant. Just say, no, I don't believe in that. Just turn away from Christ. And we won't put you to death. Anybody have Fox's Book of Martyrs? Fox's Book of Martyrs. One of you. Two of you. Three of you. Some of you are ordering it on Amazon right now, right? You've got Prime. It'll be here Monday, preacher. Get a copy. If you can get a copy, especially if you can get it cheaply secondhand, 
grab a copy. In the early 1900s, if they considered it, and this is kind of weird, weird about salvation, but if they considered if you were really a Christian, on your nightstand next to your bed, you had Fox's Book of Martyr and your King James Bible sitting right on top of it. And they were to be read one and then the other. And the reason is, is because it lists from the time of Jesus people who have given their lives for the faith over and over and over and over again. There was one man named Polycarp. Anybody ever heard of Polycarp? He's a disciple of John who wrote Revelation, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, Gospel of John. He was a direct disciple of him. And they came one day, the Romans came to arrest him. And he said, I'll go with you. But first, let me cook you a meal so you don't get hungry on the way back. And while you're eating, allow me to pray. Would any of you cook a meal for somebody to to arrest you? I would. I'd be looking for the back door. So it actually says that while the soldiers were eating the meal that he had prepared for them and they heard him praying, they were all filled with sorrow that they had to take him back. When he got before the Caesar or the constable or whoever it was at that time, I don't know. They said, recant. Deny Jesus and we'll let you go. He said, 87 years I have served my Lord and my Christ and he has never failed me once. Why would I dare fail him now? They killed him. This is what we're talking about, guys. We live in America. We're immune to all this. No, we're not. We're not. And if we think we are, we've gotten extremely comfortable in our Christianity. And that has become the stumbling block before us. Now, if we lived here, it would be a different story. But we don't. And we have to remember that. Moving on. Verse 5, But now, I am going to Him who sent me. So notice, He's telling them, I'm, re- I'm returning back to the Father. And none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Now notice, Jesus telling them, I'm going away. But you're so overwhelmed with emotion right now, you're not even bothering to ask me where I'm going. All they're thinking about is, Jesus will not be with me anymore. He is gone. Now, we can can sympathize with this a little bit, can't we? How would you respond to that? He's sitting there teaching you, all of a sudden he's like, hey, I'm going back to the Father. I'm going to leave you guys. Well, how does that make you feel? We spent three years with you. We've listened to all of your teachings. We've seen your miracles. You actually raised the dead. And now you're leaving? What are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to go on? It all stops right here. Notice no one said, Lord, where where are you going? What is the reason for your leaving us? And does it have a greater weight than the emotion that I feel right now? See, watch this. Are the facts of the situation that I don't see far greater in the scope of God's glory than what I'm feeling right now? Oh, church. We are going to have a good teaching on this in about a month. Allowing the facts of Scripture to trump the feelings that often lead us to disobedience. Notice this. I'm so focused on how I feel right now, I don't even care what Jesus is doing. 
Anybody ever been there? Yeah. And oftentimes we miss what Jesus is doing and can't benefit from what Jesus is doing because it's all about us. Look what he says in verse 7. But I tell you the truth, which in the Kentucky version means I ain't lying. It is to your advantage that I go away. Okay, hold the phone. Raise your hand if you believe what Jesus just said. If we were standing there, we wouldn't, would we? Advantage, beneficial, it's profitable. In fact, if you break this word down into a compound, it's a compound word. If you break it down into its individual, sim, pharaoh is the word. Sim means togetherness or to assemble together something. Pharaoh means to bring or to carry about. And when you put it together, it's the idea of a profitable whole. It's profitable that I go. It's very beneficial for you if I leave you. So, okay, wait a second, Jesus. Forgive me for being so slow. But when you walk away from us and don't come back, it's good? Yes! It's not just good. It is to your advantage. Now, I don't know about you, but if you're ever sitting down playing Texas Hold'em, you want an advantage. Right? Should I have not said that? Am I getting ready to get fired? Is that what's going on here? Sorry. When you're playing Monopoly with other Christians, which is far worse to do than play poker, okay? But when you're playing Monopoly with other Christians, anybody ever been in a Christian Monopoly game? Carnal, fleshly, wrong, nothing of the Spirit, a lot of First John 1, 9 afterwards, I promise you. But in doing so, you want an advantage. You want help. What does the other person have? I want to be on top of this situation. I want to know that I'm going to come out with flying colors and be successful on the other end of it and I can have that confidence walking into a situation. Notice that's what Jesus is saying. I'm going to leave. That doesn't seem so good, but it's to your advantage. Okay, I'm listening. How is it to my advantage? Well, look what he says. It's your advantage I go away. For if I do not go away... The helper will not come to you. Now stop. Didn't we see this in John 7.39? John 7.39. Let's look at that real quick. Can we pull that up real quick? Go back. If you remember John 7.39, he was talking to them about that the Spirit is going to be like rivers of flowing water that is gushing out from their innermost being. John 7.39, he's at the Feast of Tabernacles. Remember, he stands up. If anybody's thirsty, come to me and drink. And look what he says here at 39. Chapter 7.39. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him, now watch this, were to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet what? glorified now let's do some investigative study here notice i have to go away and this is going to be your to your advantage but the spirit can't come if i don't go away and so if we know the spirit can't come until jesus is glorified we've all of a sudden got this exchange that needs to happen when did this start everybody turn back to john 13 look at john 13 This is the moment, and here's what's interesting about this, guys. Read it sometime this week on your own. Have you ever thought it's weird that they're all sitting around the table for the Last Supper, and John asks him, who's going to betray you? 
He's like, well, I'm going to take this breadstick from Pizza Hut and dip it in the marinara sauce. I'm going to hand it to the guy. You ever thought that's strange? Anybody? Like, that's the sign. That's the sign. Does everybody realize he didn't reveal that to everybody? In fact, it says that John leaned back, how they were reclining at the table, he leaned back on Jesus' chest. Which means that somehow we're getting the whisper conversation. Lord, tell me who it is. Can you imagine? Jesus is revealing to John right then and there, this is the person that's going to betray me. That's incredible. Because he didn't send him go, it's that guy right there! Which would have helped all of us, right? But to John, it was something special that he revealed to him. So notice, when this takes place, look at verse 30. So after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately, and it was night. Now watch this next verse here. Therefore, when he, that's Judas, had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man what? Glorified. In other words, when Judas took that morsel and he walked out to begin the betrayal process, it's like somebody lit a match and put it to the fuse. Now the events are in motion to bring about the glorification of Jesus. Now that means, get this, that the glorification that he is talking about includes death. This shouldn't surprise us. Forgive me if I get this wrong. John 21.19, if you want to write it down maybe and look at it. When he's discussing with Peter, and he says something to Peter about how Peter's going to die. John actually makes the comment there. He was speaking of how Peter would glorify him in his body. Speaking of Peter's death. So notice, there's something to do with the connection of death and glorification that takes place. Now, why do we bring all this up? Because the death of Christ has to take place in dying for sins. And then, Sometime between his initial appearance to Mary before he appeared to anybody else, right? And she, you know, called him Rabboni. And then she ran off and told all the disciples about this. And they didn't believe her. Look at Mark 16. Jesus has to rebuke them because they didn't believe that he was resurrected from the dead. Sometime between that time, he ascends into heaven and he presents his blood as the sacrifice for the sins of the world, acting in the role as the great high priest of God who is spotless and without blemish. So not only in a resurrected form does he appear as our priest in God's throne room to offer atonement, but the offering that he has is his own perfect blood. Now all of this takes place after satisfaction for sins is made, we call it propitiation, that's the $5 Scrabble word, propitiation, after that is made, He then asks the Father, will you send to them the Holy Spirit? So, forgive me. Jesus comes back, He teaches on the kingdom of God for 40 days, and then when He ascends, He asks the Father to send the Holy Spirit. So all of this encompasses the glorification situation. And why is death necessary? Because for Jesus, death was the means to atone for the sins of people so that everyone could be acceptable before God if they would receive this righteousness that He freely offers. That's the idea behind this. So 
So he is doing what no one else could do in this glorification. Now, go back to 16. Notice that he has to go away for the helper, the parakletos, to come. Will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. Now watch this, and here's where we're camping out. Everything up here has been introduction so far. Verse 8. And he, stop, who's he? Holy Spirit. When he comes, here's something I do in my Bible whenever I see timing language. I draw a circle and I draw little clock hands. And it's usually four o'clock. I don't know why. But anyway, I draw four o'clock on there, something like that, because it lets me know there's a specific time that something is going to take place. Now let's read the verse and let's break it down. Notice what it says. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And he, the Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit comes, stop. When does the Holy Spirit come? Pentecost. Anybody know where it's at? Chapter verse. Acts chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. The Holy Spirit comes upon them at that moment. And that is when the birth of the church takes place. Okay? So we know the time because we are privy to future information. Yay, us. Right? Now watch what happens. When he comes... He will, what's the word? What's the verb? Convict. Anybody like to be convicted? Anybody looking today, you know what? I could really use some conviction in my life. No. No one wants conviction, but stop. Jesus is telling us that this is the primary ministry of the Holy Spirit when He comes. Which means that when the church started is when the convicting ministry of the church, or sorry, of the Holy Spirit started with the church. Does that make sense? Now watch this, conviction. The idea is to be reproving to somebody or to be convincing of somebody, convicting them of something that is wrong. And usually when this word, enclencho, I think is how you say it, or enclenco, something like that, whatever. I think the Lord Pastor Steve is not here. He would destroy me for my Greek pronunciation. But, Mary Cooper, don't say a word. Um, but in doing that, it usually has tacked onto it the idea that someone should be feeling shame for wrong. That's the idea. Well, the Holy Spirit would never shame anyone. He doesn't have to. We have enough sin that if we're simply convicted, we'll be shamed on our own. Why? Because sin is wrong. We have got to get that through our heads as a culture and embrace it. Sin is just flat out wrong. It's sin. So notice, this is the convicting work he's going to do. Now stop, because he also tells you the audience. He will convict who? The world. The world. The world. That's the audience. The Holy Spirit, when he comes with the birth of the church, and indwells believers, is going to start a convicting ministry. And that convicting ministry is with the purpose of convincing the world that they are wrong in three areas. Sin, righteousness, and judgment. Everybody got that? Now think the Lord, that if we just would have read that, we would say, I kind of know what that means, but not really, I'm lying. Right? So he breaks it down for us. So look at verse 9. 
Concerning sin, that's number one, right? The first one. Concerning sin, what is he going to convict the world on? Concerning sin, because they do not what? Believe in me. Now stop for a second. This is how you know that the use, because the word world in Scripture, cosmos, has a wide array of semantic meaning. It could mean the universe. It could mean the world system that, that Satan has created here. It could mean the world is just people at large. So it's got a wide meaning. But notice here it tells us that the reason why the Holy Spirit will be convicting the world of sin is because they are in unbelief. And notice it's not just any unbelief. Like I'm not for sure if there's a gap theory in Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2. That's not what we're having difficulty about. Notice that it's very pointed. Because they do not believe in who? Jesus. In fact, if it helps you, write Jesus there. They do not believe in Jesus. It's this time, guys, right? Anybody need a pen? I didn't even offer you one today. Anybody need a pen? Okay, just making sure. You're going to be convicting them of sin. Why? Because they are in unbelief. And they need to believe. Sin is the problem. Sin is the problem. Let me say it one more time. Sin is the problem. Well, no, it's not. She's just going through a hard time right now. Sin is the problem. Well, he's just so prideful, he won't admit what he's done. Sin is the problem. Satan has convinced the American church to polish leaves and to prune some branches here and there instead of treating the root. We throw all kinds of money, time, and energy at symptoms. But we never bring the cure to the issue. The issue is sin. Well, they're just going through a phase. Sin! Well, they went off to the Navy and came back talking like a sailor. Sin! We rationalize sin like it's... It's really not that. Our playdown of sin has done nothing to help this world. Nothing. Sin is sin. Well, I don't want to bring up sin because I have sin. What do you do about that? Confess it. 1 John 1 9. Identify it for what it is and say, I have sin. Lord, I'm so sorry that I've been involved in all this junk, in this mess, and I have grieved the Spirit of God, and I have not lived for your glory. And for some reason, I can watch seven hours of golf. But if the preacher goes long, I'm so upset about it. This is why I have no sympathy for that argument or those types of attitudes. If we can send our kids to a public school system that has completely thrown God out of it for 40 hours a week and somebody complains because we're here for two and a half hours, that's a you problem. It's not a God problem. If we have no problem DVRing and binge-watching stuff on Netflix, but we're upset because we've got to be here under God's Word, worshiping Him in spirit and truth, desiring to be different people so the Holy Spirit would change us from the inside out because we are gloriously redeemed by the blood of Christ and eternally secure in Him, that's not a me problem. In fact, let's go one deeper. It's not even a you problem. It's a sin problem. It's sin 
It's sin to somehow think that truth is unpalatable. Because what that leads to is unbelief. Wait a second. What's the convicting ministry of the Spirit in the first phase? Sin. They don't believe. Have you ever wondered if maybe some reason why the world is not coming to believe by the convicting ministry of the Holy Spirit might because we don't believe that the Holy Spirit is really doing that ministry? Have we ever thought that maybe the problem starts with the attitude and outlook of the church and their approach to the truth of God's Word and therefore that's why it's not being dispensed because here's the secret, guys. If the Holy Spirit is convicting the world of sin because they don't believe, guess who He's using to do it? Us. Guys, this is where He lives. He has abided with you. He's been with you. And He will be in you. Guess what? We are in the dispensation of where He is in us. We are in the in us phase of the Holy Spirit. And if that is the case, then one of our primary goals in living this life is born again people who God has placed of Himself to reside permanently in us forever is to be dispensing the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. Well, you don't know how people will treat me if I do that. Yeah, Jesus does. He just told you about it in verses 18 of 15 through the end of 4 of 16. He told you they're going to hate you. He told you they're going to persecute you. He told you they're going to throw you out of places of social acceptance. He told you. He already told you in advance. And why did he tell you? So that when these things happen, you know that he knows that he knows where you are. That's the reason why. But maybe the failure of the world to be convicted of their sin is because the church stopped being convicted of their sin. We never arrive. Not until we die or rapture. We never arrive. We're never done. And what we often do is, well, what we need to do is we need to pray that somebody else will get that done. <laughs> Liar! No! That conviction that you feel that somebody needs to get in there and do something is the Holy Spirit telling you, walk forward in faith. Do it! Get involved! Stop being comfortable! Stop hiding! Live for Christ because it's the best possible life you can live. You can't tell me that after we've watched 24 hours of some TV show because we kept going that afterwards we're like, man, I am thoroughly satisfied. I'm so tranquil and at peace with my existence right now. Hmm. No, what do we do? Well, I wonder what other shows got 94 episodes I can dive into for the next six years. That's what we do. There's no fulfillment. Let's not kid ourselves that there is. The first area he convicts is sin. The place where he lives is us. The instruments that he uses are us to do his work. How about the second one? And concerning righteousness. Why, Jesus? Because, forgive me, I go to the Father. And you no longer see me. Now you might say, what? The Holy Spirit is going to convict the world of righteousness. 
because Jesus is going to go away. In other words, because Jesus is not physically present on earth in order to be truth as a person and to speak truth into this world, instead he's ascended at the right hand of the Father, he has sent the Holy Spirit to be the evidence of righteousness on the earth. You and I, because we have the Holy Spirit encased inside of us, are the preservations of society. We are the ones that are saying there is a right and better way or that there just simply is a right. There is a truth. That's where we're at. That's the ministry that He wants to do through us. Let me give you an example of this. Take your Bible, if you would, put your finger here, turn over to 1 Peter 2. 1 Peter 2, let me give you an example of being the ones who promote and bear righteousness because Jesus is not here. Everybody curl up your toes, ready? 1 Peter 2, verse 13. Submit yourselves. Now what does the word submit mean? It means to voluntarily put yourself under another. Voluntarily. That means your will and volition is saying, yes, I will do this. So notice, Peter is calling his audience, believers in Christ, submit. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Uh Uh-oh. You know what that means? Your government? That's exactly what that means. I don't like what the new governor of Wisconsin is doing. Jesus doesn't care. Unless it violates your biblical principles and convictions, submit. Notice this. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. Now watch this. Here's the reason why. He wants to let you know why it is important that we live this righteous way in pagan society. For such is the will of God. Right? So everybody go back to when you came home from youth camp or you're out in the middle of nowhere with all the trees in youth camp, okay? I just wish I knew what God's will was for my life. Right? You're all tanked up on s'mores and apple juice or something like that, and you're just frustrated because I just want to know what God... I just want to do God's will. Here it is. Submit to those who are over you. Voluntarily place yourself under the headship of others. It's God's will. Now watch this. Such is the will of God that by doing, what's the word? Stop for a second. He just gave you a definitive moral and ethical action to perform as a Christian. Submitting yourself to every human institution that's been instituted because they've all been instituted by God, right? Romans 13. It's right. It's the right thing to do. And it is in perfect alignment with God's will. Notice this, that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Why is that? Because your submission is testifying to righteousness. It is the Holy Spirit testifying through us to righteousness. That's the reason why. It's God's will. It's right. And it causes people who want to be rash and idiotic about things and respond in worldly, carnal, fleshly ways to all of a sudden close their mouths. 
You know what that's called? Conviction. They just got convicted that something else is going on and they had nothing to say. Our actions were right. That's an example of a display of righteousness that the Holy Spirit seeks to do because Jesus is not here to testify it anymore. Instead, the Holy Spirit who indwells us is testifying through us that there is a standard of righteousness. Turn back to John 16. Let's finish this up. Verse 10, And concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. Does everybody see where he's going with this? The Holy Spirit testifies through us to the sinfulness of people and calling sin what it is, to the fact that there is a standard of righteousness and the Holy Spirit desires to shine light on that truth. But number three, the fact that there is a judgment that is coming. Now a lot of people will balk at that, they'll scoff at that. That's fine. doesn't change the fact that it's going to happen. We may not like something, but it still happens. Right? You feel that way about taxes. I don't like taxes, but they're happening, so we have to prepare for them, right? And do so voluntarily submitting ourselves to them. There is a judgment that is coming. But notice the reason, the example that he gives forward about how this is going to take place. Because the ruler of this world has been judged already. This is an incredible statement. Jesus hasn't even died on the cross yet. And Satan is already judged. Notice that Jesus calls him the ruler of this world. That didn't come from me. Notice that that's what Jesus designates him as. He's already judged. What is he saying here? He's saying that if the greater being has already been judged, then those who are in unbelief being lesser beings will be judged as well. If he's taking care of the greater, be guaranteed he will deal with the lesser. Or let's say it this way. The judgment against Satan is a foretaste of the judgment that is to come. And that judgment is meant to motivate a fire under people's behinds so that they would see the gospel for what it is and believe it. Therefore, we are to talk to people about judgment. Let me show you how easy this is. John 3. Go back to John 3. Jesus talking to Nicodemus. We love John 3.16, right? But how many of us know John 3.18? Because in John 3.18 is extremely profound truth. Now watch how it's worded here. John 3.18. He who believes in him is not what? Okay, does it sound like we're talking about some of the same stuff? It does, right? So if you believe in Christ, no judgment. Amen, praise God, hallelujah. Get out your glory fans and start fanning it, right? That's good stuff. I love that. Thank you, God, that I'm not going to be judged. Why? Because I deserve judgment. And yet I'm not getting it because Jesus has been judged in my place. But watch this. He who does not believe has been judged judged already it's already a past tense conclusion now watch this because just in case you weren't clear on what jesus said he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of god judgment is coming for people who are in unbelief they are to be convicted of sin because they are in unbelief. 
Judgment is coming on them and is already certain and sure because of their unbelief. How in the world can you escape this certain destiny in the lake of fire? There's only one way, and that is accepting the pardon that God Himself has provided. Now, you'll get the question from people, well, wait a second, if God is a loving and good God, why would He send anyone to hell? This misses the point entirely. God doesn't have to send anybody to hell. We're all already going there apart from Him. God is not the one who is like, okay, this way, this way, this no, 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 argument, this way. No, He doesn't do that. Everybody's already on their way. There is no off-ramp. You are stuck. And so what God does is He says, let's rescue these people. Let's provide an off-ramp for them. They're already going this direction, but they don't have to. By their very nature, that's where they belong. Why? Because the lake of fire is suitable for people who do not have life. So since that's the case, what does God do as the offended one in the party? He provides life. The Lamb's book of life. And He says, if you will believe, you will go from already condemned to not judged. You will go from has been judged already to no condemnation for those in Christ. So He is the Rescuer, capital R, Rescuer, who is actually trying to get people out of a destiny of the lake of fire. How could a good God send people to hell? He doesn't. A good God seeks to rescue people from hell. He doesn't want anybody in hell. Sin, righteousness, and judgment. Our evangelism should be in an alignment, in an alignment with where the Holy Spirit is convicting. When we're talking to people and the conversation turns to spiritual matters and you see that wide open door, in confidence of the Holy Spirit, walk through it and start talking about sin. Well, what if they get mad and leave it? I told you to say these things in the beginning so that when they happened, you would know. They might. Well, I'm afraid they're going to get upset with me and never talk to me again. Well, they're going to spend forever in the lake of fire if you don't talk to them. So which one's more important, our feelings or the facts about the situation? Because trust me, we're great at rationalizing ourselves out of evangelism. We've been doing it for years. And that's not a plateau church, that's a declining church. Evangelism has to be happening. And when we evangelize, we need to evangelize in an alignment with where the Holy Spirit is convicting. Sin, righteousness, judgment. It's very simple. The beauty of this whole thing is that God wants to use us as the instruments that hold Him in order to be used by Him for His purposes. Guys, there is no greater calling in life. There is no greater success in life. There is no greater achievement in life than for the Father to say, I want to use you to get my work done. It's huge. 